Jesus Control Structure Episode 17, Pass the Fried Chicken, for March 12, 2013, with hosts Andrew Bailey and Christopher Thompson, and guest John Gosling. And now, object-oriented programming considered harmful. Big week, Chris. Very big week. How my big? Ro- my roommate that went to India cannot come back, so now I'm left with all of his stuff. And your DVDs. And his DVDs. Well, didn't you say he uh, took some? Um, not that I'm aware of. I think he took them all on his hard drive. Hmm. Well, it's been a huge week for me. Um, really? Yeah, I uh, got a car loan. Ooh, nice. Yeah, I'm going to be buying my parents' car. Congratulations for going into debt just like the rest of us. Yay! So, and then, uh, oh, yeah, part of the swarm launch. Uh, oh. Yeah, hots. Yeah, HOTS. I, that's like the best acronym ever. HOTS. Yes, it is. HOTS. <laughs> so, so then, uh, yeah, the week's only going to get better because uh, we're going to have someone famous on the podcast. Really? <laughs> oh, wait, this is the podcast, isn't it? Yes, it is. Hello, I'm John Gosling. So, so nice uh, to meet you. Yeah. Nice to meet you guys. Nice to meet your audience. Yep, so uh, thanks for being on our podcast. Of course, thank you for having me. And uh, thanks to everyone listening. Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, so last week, uh, well, I guess I guess this is, going, this is going to be our Kickstarter of the week, uh, pretty much almost dedicated the entire thing. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I understand that you have a Kickstarter. I do. Um, I, uh, I'm the founder of Level Zero Games. And I'm kickstarting NetGain Corporate Espionage, which is a strategy game about near-future corporate espionage, uh, hiring teams, infiltrating your competition and bringing them down, taking over the market. Hmm, so, you know, sort of like what actually happens in the real world. Exactly, like what happens in the real world. So it's sort of like uh, being in charge of the news, almost. (laughs) It's one of the many industries you can... uh, build up and exploit. Oh, sounds interesting. Cool. Let's just hope the military doesn't use it. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, well, shall we get started with the uh, interview? Mm -hmm. Yep. So, I uh, guess we'll start off here. So, what got you interested in doing what you do? Uh, well, I've uh, always made games. Um, I was actually an artist for uh, most of my uh, life, I guess. Um, but when I went to college to the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, um, I realized I kind of wanted to get out of just doing art and get back into actually making making games and working with all these mechanics and concepts that we've uh, 
that we always you know play around with and experiment and kind of like study uh, as we play games and I, I just love the systems and uh, the, the interactions and having that kind of being able to evoke emotions and feelings out of hard-coded mechanics is a really exciting thing. Hmm. So, uh, any particular kind of artist, like a comic strip artist, or? Um, well, I always hoped of doing uh, art for games, um, but hmm. I've definitely kind of shifted gears pretty heavily into uh, more of the design aspect and uh, programming aspect, and I've hmm. uh, stepped away from from art quite a bit. Hmm. Uh, oh. Visual art, visual art that is, yeah. Def, def, definitely a different turn than most gamers take. <laughs> um, well, speaking of uh, games and whatnot, uh, what inspires you? Um, maybe oh. a, you know, pretty much anything. Uh, yeah, I, um, especially well, as far as that uh, game uh, corporate espionage is concerned, uh, there are many classic strategy games uh, that have inspired me. Uh, Covert Action, uh, an old Sid Meier classic. Uh, are you guys familiar? No. Doesn't that sound familiar? It's, um, it's you play this uh, spy in like, Maximilian something, and uh, you're supposed to defeat these uh, uh, plots by these masterminds. But uh, the part that was exciting to me was that the plots had these kind of um, uh, like randomized things. Like you'd, you'd find big purchases for weapons or uh, license plate numbers, and you have to like piece together the plan and try to stop it before they committed the plan. And uh, so, out of that, uh, I thought of that would be a great kind of mission mechanic of putting together that that mission. Yeah, so I can see how that maps easily to uh, uh, net gain. Um, you know, then, uh, you know, uh, any other things that might have inspired you? Yeah, actually, the, um, the original inspiration for the whole thing was, um, running Shadowrun games, uh, for my friends. Um, I, uh, I, I was the, the game master, <laughs> and, uh, it was, it was pretty fun, uh, thinking of these elaborate plots as the Johnson and, and sending the players out on these missions for these... Uh, hmm. Secret missions that they they would slowly uncover as the the game unfolds, and uh, I always thought that'd be a great aspect to having games. But there's really not a lot of games that tackle the the espionage uh, aspect or whatever else. Uh, it's always tactical games. It's, I mean, which were great. I love tactics games, but uh, there's, there's no real being the puppet master, being the mastermind kind of games. Hmm. I I agree. The only ones I can really think of are D and D. But you might make an excellent D and D master. <laughs> I, I have uh, gotten uh, pretty good marks from my, my players. They, uh, they like my games. No, I, I've run Shadowrun. I've run uh, Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, Spear of the Century was great fun. Cool. Uh, uh, Dogs in the Vineyard uh, actually is another. Uh, it's a kind of more of an indie RPG, but it's fantastic fun. Um, and that's actually a good example of. Uh, mechanics that inform emotional uh, reactions. Because, um, like in Dogs in the Vineyard, uh, you normally can always, always win. You can always win a competition, but in order to do so, you always have to bring in some other element that complicates the conflict. Like you can bring out your gun and get those extra dice for it, but then suddenly 
you're, you've turned from a discussion to threatening people with a weapon. And it's just kind of this escalation mechanic of how far do you want to push these people to get your way. And hmm, uh, interesting. Yeah. It's a fantastic game. I'd recommend looking into it. So, uh, you know, it seems that uh, both me and Chris are, you know, some of the only ones on the network that are into strategy games. Mm. Um, but, uh, you know, going, you know, just, you know, watching the uh, video on your Kickstarter page, you know, I get a strong vibe uh, that's sort of like, uh, uh, oh, what is it, Uplink. Oh, yeah. Uh, introversion. <laughs> I, I, I know I'm going to cite tons of inspirations and sources, but it's... They, they all are exactly what I draw from. Uh, introversion is a fantastic aesthetic. Uh, I actually really like how in most of their games, uh, like Uplink and Darwinia and a bit in Defcon, um, how you, the player, are part of the game. It, it's not you're playing someone, it's you at the terminal are someone. Yeah. Um, I, I do like games where that is more like it. Yeah. And... This would be a great addition to the genre because the games are lacking. Yeah, there, there's there's some solid strategy games. Uh, especially love the grand strategy games uh, done by um, Paradox when they put out the uh, uh, Europa Universalis. Uh, it's a great game. Crusader King Two um, was uh, a, had a lot of uh, inspiration in the in that game. Uh, um, it's uh, just as far as like the they had some a bit of a plot element in there, but it was it's a pretty small feature. But it was it's cool to have it in there and kind of these complex personalities that make up the strategy game. So it's not just you know you don't you didn't feel as removed from the strategy game as you used to. So you you've had these actual characters and you had children with different traits that you'd have to pass your your kingdom onto. And it was mm. a I like that kind of more emotional engagement with the, the characters in a strategy game. Okay. Okay. So at least, at least, uh, what inspires you is you know, you know, sort of directly related to uh, what you do. Yeah. You know, like sometimes you'll ask someone, "Is like what what really inspires you?" And then they'll say something like a collection of uh, Emily Dickinson poetry or something. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's definitely tons of sources of inspiration. Uh, I I try to be like a sponge and just draw on as many things as I can. Uh, I, I read up on uh, uh, different uh, legal actions and past corporate espionage events. I, uh, I, I, I've studied economics uh, for a little bit to try to get a better grasp of that. And, uh, and then, of course, there's media like Ghost in the Shell, which is a huge inspiration behind the NetGain universe. As far as that, Ghost in the Shell? Oh, yeah. Um, nice. The series, um, I think, that, really that, that, that's actually one of my more favorite series. Actually, yeah, it, it's it's amazingly well done. Um, but I, I just love the the realness of the setting and how it, it tries to kind of ground itself in this sense of an actual evolving from the real world instead of having this really alien fantasy kind of place. Hmm. So, uh, well, I guess it's a uh, you know a little bit into it, but uh, congratulations on the Kickstarter. Uh, you have been successfully funded with uh, 18 days to go, which uh, I believe is still more than half. Oh yeah. So uh, presently, you have 556 backers. Uh, the last one was me, uh, <laughs> for a total of twenty thousand three hundred dollars. 
Well, thank you very much for your generous pledge. No problem. I uh, uh, did the $30 level, the uh, the one where you can name the, uh, uh, the you know, sort of just a name out there plus the company. Hmm. Uh, well, what, uh, what company are you thinking of uh, putting out there? Well, uh, in my last job, uh, you know, in our testing system, uh, there is this one company name that always cracked me up, and it was Almost Never Collapses. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, whenever I went into the, you know, the QA environment, it always cracked me up to see that in a drop-down. <laughs> <laughs> we'll make an interesting construction uh, contractor. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and the name is definitely going to be... Uh, you know, some sort of wordplay. <laughs> so, yeah. and uh, it says you're from uh, Chicago. Mm-hmm. So, the uh, the windy city there, and uh, I I've been to Chicago. Let's see, I've s- stayed there once on one of my dad's union trips, uh, but you know, I've been through uh, you know by train a couple of times. Mm-hmm. Uh, so and I did notice that from your video, uh, you know, like I didn't, I didn't really read uh, the, uh, the, you know, the side column there. So because I was, you know, watching it there, I'm like, wait, that sort of looks like that one building from Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yep. Um, so is it just you, or I assume you have some sort of team with you? Um, I, I, I bring some people on. Um, the netgain setting uh, is actually co-created by myself and Joe LoCastro. Uh, back from when we were doing the Shadowrun games, uh, we would watch Ghost in the Shell and we talk about uh, stuff we should do and cool ideas. And uh, out of those conversations, we kind of pulled the idea for the netgain world. Um, okay. But uh, on, on the project, uh, it, it's mostly... Uh, Mostly me, as far as doing the the code and the art and uh, production and Kickstarter and all that stuff. Um, I'm bringing Joe on to uh, write um, write some story. Uh, so he's gonna be doing a lot of the, the main plot line. Um, he's also gonna be helping me with uh, more of the, the more of the very story elements, different assets and news stories and whatnot. Um, okay. There's, there's also uh, Richie Palace, uh, who's um, our musician. Um, and the team may expand depending on how uh, how the Kickstarter goes, and if I can find people who would, you know, throw in for cheap. Yeah, so I, uh, uh, you know, most, I wouldn't say most, but several Kickstarters have, you know, some sort of level where it says, yeah, we'll release the soundtrack. Are you planning on doing that? Um, I do. I, um, well, uh, when we first started the Kickstarter, uh, our musicians, who I weren't really sure who was going to be working on music still, um, but Richie is definitely sticking around, um, and I do want to get his work out there. Um, okay. We, we may have a Kickstarter level. Uh, we may actually, I, I may just add it um, on the like 30 tier and up, just as a free download. Um, so it might just be kind of an extra perk for anyone who uh, bumps up the extra level. Seems fair. That would be cool. So. Yeah. Uh, the music's pretty great. I'm really excited about what we're making. Um, and Richie was patient enough to put up with me uh, badgering <laughs> him about like what it should sound like. And like, well, it's, it's almost there, but not quite. Like, well, what do you want? Uh, just just something different. And something 
almost this, but but not this. And... So any any particular genre or sound you're going for? Uh, I I always really like the idea of the combination of uh, strings and especially the voice of the cello. I, I love the cello, um, oh. but those those elements. Um, Combined with more modern uh, musical elements, uh, mixing, whatever else, um, I, I think it could be really kind of powerful uh, soundtrack of mixing these two uh, pretty opposed voices, but trying to get them to, to work together. Okay. Sounds like something I might want to listen to. Yeah, yep. it, he's done a fantastic job. Uh, the the title song, um, the, the current intro song that's up on the uh, settings or up on the Kickstarter page, uh, is a great example of the kind of feel that we want for the music. Okay. Um, does your, your game contain like any voices, people talking? Uh, currently not. No. Um, okay. We, I, I'm trying to. Uh, it's, it's very difficult doing uh, software development as pretty much a, a one-man operation as far as code and art and stuff. Um, so I'm, I'm very cautious about maintaining uh, scope for the project. Okay, uh, that's good. Yeah, voice work is a huge addition that requires lots of other people to, you know, work with their schedules, stuff like that. So it's mostly text. Yeah. All right. So, uh, yeah, you pretty much hear, you know, pretty much every time you turn around, uh, every, you know, either, you know, even just in the software world and even in the game world, how important teamwork is. <laughs> so it's it's almost you know, sickening and deafening to hear, you know, everyone say this and that. But yeah, it is it is important. So uh, mm-hmm. just and, and, and I think what's more important is the fact that you're sticking to a scope. Cause a lot of clients from hell, well we like this, we know it's due tomorrow, but can you add this and this and this? <laughs> that that happens just in general in software development too. Right. Correct. It does. <laughs> And net gain is such a, a huge thing that it's so easy to build the project. There's so many cool things you could take it to. But, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm constantly fighting for focusing and keeping scope, and it's, uh, uh, it's a pretty heavy good, battle. Good for you. What, yeah. what are your current designs? Like, what, what, are you using any... And I forgot how I wanted to word this question. Like, how? what kind of... Andrew, do you remember how I wanted to word this question? Uh, not in particular. Oh well. So, what, what kind what kind of designs are you coming up with? Um, uh, as, as far as like the mechanics or? Uh, sure. Let's go with mechanics since I forgot <laughs> my original question. Uh, I, I think I can I can do something with this. Uh, I. Uh, one of the things I try to design for are uh, systems that can can uh, represent lots of complex aspects with a fairly simple interface. Um, for example, the loyalty system, um, it, it ties into a lot of different uh, elements of the game. Um, and it can represent, between loyalties and bonds, it, it can represent so many different things. It can represent uh, people being blackmailed, it can represent, you know, the job security, uh, you know, people getting along or not getting along with their boss. But but all you see as a player, or all you need to see as a player, is, is that mark of how high their loyalty is and that mark of how strong your bond on them is. 
So, uh, do you find the, the programming the simulation to be fun? Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's uh, I, I I make sure not to fall into the programmer trap of um, enjoying making the simulation too much. Because uh, it, it's it's pretty easy to just start making all these cool little mechanics and forgetting that it's supposed to be a game. Um, so it's I, I, every now and then to step back and make sure that this is mechanics and systems that are working for the gameplay and not just because they're fun to make. So, uh, well, I guess you can ask about the visual design. Um, from the Kickstarter page, it looks like you're sort of going for a early 90s sort of look. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, it's definitely a pixel art style. Um, there's actually a lot of reasons for that. I, I, there's some hate on the style. Uh, people might not like it because, you know, they want more graphics, or they might not like it because they think it's retro hipster bullcrap or something. <laughs> uh, it, it's uh, There's a lot of good reasons for using the pixel style. One thing is that it is it is faster to produce, which means I can make more variety of arts and right. communicate what I need. Um, but it's also that uh, NetGain is designed to open up more and more to community involvement. Um, and pixel okay. art is a very accessible style. So it's something that, you know, when we do get to the stages of opening up the people, that they can make artwork and send it in, and it's easier to mesh with the existing styles when it's that so, kind of... So, sort of like Minecraft? Uh, yes, um, but very much uh, integrating the user cr- and community creations that fit the setting into the setting. So if people make cool missions and, and cool operatives and cool ideas, uh, traits, whatever else, that work with the setting, then we can bring them in and build the game. Okay. Yeah, so so, it's, so uh, I, I assume all of this is eventually going to be moddable? Uh, hopefully, yes. Um, right, right now, the, the focus is still very much on but, getting the ground. But uh, yeah, the data is all open, um, and I definitely would love to have the modding community. Um, all right. Yeah. And which which language did you say you were programming in? I'm using C Sharp with Unity. Sweet. So, yeah, I've uh, heard uh, quite a bit about Unity, uh, especially of late. I heard that they uh, released a 4.0 version. Mm-hmm. So, um... They're on 4.0.1 now. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> so, um... I don't know. I guess I might have been uh, too far out to, uh, you know, really experience Unity games from the start. But uh, it seems to be sort of a, I don't know, sort of a meme, I guess. Um, you know, sort of like how Flash games are. Uh, but I really didn't. Uh, uh, well, was didn't get much exposure to games built on Unity until I uh, saw the uh, Seven Day FPS Challenge. Uh, um, no, it. It's a fantastic uh, engine. Um, it, it's really accessible. It's got a strong base. It's really fast to get stuff off the ground. Um, the asset store, uh, there's actually some... Ven- like I, I use uh, NGUI as well, um, which is a fantastic asset for building uh, the GUI systems. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it's great for just getting stuff off the ground fast and really seeing your work as soon as you, as soon as you can. Okay. Um, did you uh, consider any other engines? Um, I I did a little bit, but not really that much. Um, 
I was pretty sold on Unity. Uh, I, we worked on it. Uh, I made uh, NetGain Stories, um, which is a Android uh, phone game for free uh, about interactive fiction um, set in the same universe. And we made that with Unity. Um, so I, I've gotten used to the engine, and it's this definitely covers my needs. So. All right, so more, more along the lines, it's just something you were experienced with working with? Mm-hmm. Okay, and, cool. Uh, I, I think it's yeah. It's I think from what I've seen, it is one of the the best ways to get something built fast while still having that flexibility to make something unique. Yeah, you know, for instance, uh, Notch uh, built you know Minecraft and Java, mm-hmm. and you know, considering what Minecraft is, you know, surprisingly. You know, even though with the lower as graphics that it has, it actually needs quite a bit of uh, computing power to actually yeah. make it you know run decently. Um, you know, granted, you know Java isn't really the uh, the most performant of platforms you can build you know build a game with. Uh, it's what he knew. So yeah, and so you know, I don't really fault him for that. No, not at all. Um, no. I do come at this. As like I came at programming as a designer. Like most people start with programming, and then pick up design as they make games. But I was a designer who picked up programming to make games. Um, so my interest is really more grounded in a uh, in, in in getting my mechanics out there and then building and iterating on those. Okay, so. Uh... Uh, were you initially looking at you know doing any freelance designer work or? Uh, I've I've done some uh, freelance work mostly with uh, like I've done some tutorial stuff. Um, I used to actually I used to teach a uh, uh, a summer program for for kids um, on the foundations of object oriented programming, which was tons of fun. Um, but but really, I've always kind of wanted to do my own thing, and this has really been my my chance to do so. Okay. So, uh, well, since you mentioned that uh, you came at it from a designer perspective, was there any uh, uh, sort of insurmountable challenges uh, with programming? Um, only reverse. <laughs> still in the prototype phase, but uh, so there will, there will be challenges coming up, but no challenges insurmountable. Uh, right on. So that uh, sort of reminds me when I uh, started college uh, both me and Chris went to uh, Newmont University in Utah uh, really small place mm-hmm. not surprised if anyone's not heard of it but uh, <laughs> yeah. it's it's you know pretty much uh, you know school for programmers and uh, I remember the uh, first quarter that uh, you know get in there and you could pretty much immediately tell who programmed before <laughs> because you know they they get they we would get our stuff done so fast you know we'd be you know well I would say playing World of Warcraft but I never got close to that right. uh, <laughs> um, while everyone else was trying to figure out what a return statement does <laughs> yeah I had a, a a bit of a leg up uh, I didn't really get into programming too much until early college but even back in uh, middle school. I'd often, you know, uh, ignore math class to make games on my calculator, and uh, ah, not bad, fun stuff. That's that's sort of the holy grail of old school programming. Oh yeah, TI eighty threes. Yep, I remember those. Yeah. I had uh, awesome splash screens, and then I'd have little like little war games. Rad. 
It's so much fun. <laughs> nice. Um, in your coding, are you using any pro pattern methodologies? Oh, yeah. Um, uh, as, as I said, I, I really kind of came at programming from the designer side. And um, even though I had some college classes, a lot of this has been learning on my own. Um, so sometimes I implement patterns without actually realizing I'm implementing them. Uh, but the, the factory method is like a good example of the pattern I use a lot. Uh, there, or of course, all game, uh, most most games will have singleton patterns. Uh, like I'll have uh, the GUI manager and the game managers, and um, but I use the factory patterns to create uh, all the operatives and the corporations and stuff because they're they're very complex entities. And so I, I find it kind of nice to have all of that um, code in a controlled factory. Um, uh, company factory. <laughs> yeah, I've. Uh, I think there's also um, a decorator pattern I use on occasion. Uh, chain responsibility, uh, as far as passing. Um, uh, uh, <laughs> I'm trying to explain it. Um, as, as far as like passing some of the commands through uh, for like the traits, uh, for example, uh, need kind of that information passed back and through uh, to them. Um, but yeah, but it's a, a lot of the patterns I kind of pick up as I, I, I go along and try to figure out solutions to the various problems I run into. Yes. Cool. You know, I haven't, uh, really had much exposure to programming simulations, but, you know, it seems that there would be like this huge object graph that you'd have to deal with. Uh, <laughs> you know, like you to pull a string here and a bell rings on the other side, you know, right. what, <laughs> what exactly happened with that? Yeah, it's uh, definitely lots of events receivers and, and the like, and just, just trying to make sure that the connections are as many as I need and no more. So, um, yeah, and I remember back in my, uh, uh, what was it, the discrete mathematics class that uh, we were, you know, dealing with object graphs and, you know, you know, trying to find like the minimum spanning tree and, you know, all these really interesting algorithms that, you know, in retrospect, that class was one of the hardest classes I've taken, but it was also one of the most fun. Mm. So. Mm. Yeah. Cool. Well, at least you're using quite a bit of patterns, so that's good. Yeah, they're, they're good. I, I definitely need to uh, study up more on, on the game design patterns and, uh, so still expanding my knowledge every day. And well, the singleton pattern is one of my favorite <laughs> patterns to use, primarily for, like you said, managers. And and I, uh, well, speaking of managers, I came across a few series of blog posts uh, maybe a year or two ago that says, I will not call it something manager. And <laughs> it gives, like, all these other... Uh, alternatives to using the word manager in your class names <laughs> so in in the code base i have for my blog uh i i think i've killed all the managers <laughs> i most <laughs> i mostly have things like buckets and uh repos <laughs> interesting so well i, I know actually uh I was talking about uh, some programming on on Reddit recently, and apparently they're saying that the factory method is is bad, and you're not supposed to do it. And I actually, and then that conversation degenerated into how singletons are bad; you're not supposed to do those either. And 
Uh, it seems uh, like there's always, you know, another wave of programmers that hate the existing patterns or solution. Eh, that 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 battle always exists. You can you <laughs> can take using table to using CSS. <laughs> now, now, um, you know, I'd probably say that uh, you know both me and Chris our most familiar uh, design, well, sort of programming methodology is object oriented. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so, you know, since since you know something so well, it's kind of easy to pick out its flaws. And you know, I was you know thinking earlier today that. Uh, you know, if I would, you know, compile a blog post about, you know, all the criticisms of object-oriented programming saying it's bad and call <laughs> it object-oriented programming considered bad uh, <laughs> or uh, or whatever the uh, that uh, meme title is, you know, I'd, <laughs> I'd probably have an instant hit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, controversy does sell well. Yep. But, uh... Uh, considered harmful, that's what it was. <laughs> Object-oriented programming considered harmful. <laughs> that would get some page views. Yeah. Yep, especially if you can get it quote back by the control center for diseases. <laughs> CCD. Hmm. I'm not exactly sure where you're going with that. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, I'm, uh, earlier this week I was reading an article about the daylight savings time. And the control center of disease is considered um, deprived of sleep, uh, a public have a pu- public epidemic. <laughs> I don't think daylight savings time is the only thing responsible for lack of sleep in people. Well, it it, it is a start because <laughs> go, going back an hour, well, going forward an hour, you're still in sleep when you should be waking up. Yeah. An, an hour is a small amount, but it is a significant amount when you're sleeping. Yeah, I, I think the uh, American uh, whipping to succeed might be more of a motivation behind the lack of sleep, though. Yeah, I know, but still, we're Americans. <laughs> Blame something else. <laughs> Pass the fried chicken. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um... But yeah, it is the number one cause of the shortest day of the year, uh, which <laughs> which just happened recently. Yes. So and then and then on the other side, when uh, you know go to the fall back, it's like, well, how was the longest day of the year? You know, everyone's saying, what if there is another hour in the day? Well, there you go. <laughs> yep. <laughs> uh, I, I think the whole thing's a bit silly, but uh. <laughs> so. I, it's something else to fill the news cycle with, I guess. It just comes, uh, comes up every every time. So, let's yep. see. I believe you put uh, the next question down here, Chris. Uh, oh, I thought we were going to see if... Did, did, yeah, I guess I did put the next question. Um, are you thinking of... Well, actually, let me ask it in this way. What is your the dream you have for this game? The final... Final, final product. Um, well, like, like, go wild on it. <laughs> well, I would. Uh, well, well, the first thing I'd actually wouldn't want a final, final product. I'd, I'd want something that would be uh, able to be expanded. 
um, and elegantly. I mean, sometimes expansion can go too far. So I'd, I'd want to have that, that, that core set of systems in the game and then have it open to community uh, additions as far as content and new assets and stuff. Something that can be new, new, new stuff all the time with the, from the community. Um, but, uh, yeah. st- but still well enough to stand on its own. Yeah, definitely like a strong strategy game that is. Uh, yeah, but definitely using the using the community involvement as a way of having new content to, to play around with, like new new assets and stuff. But uh, maybe some new rules rule speaks on the way. But by having that that core strategy game, that core espionage game, being the, the dominant thing. Yeah, so sort of like Skyrim, but not an RPG. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I. I I was um, one of one of the the dream uh, goals for some far future project would uh, be the the net gain field work uh, uh, expansion slash sequel, where uh, you actually get to play as the operatives uh, in a world powered by the net gain um, mechanics. So you hmm. have these corporations fighting each other, making missions, oh. and then you can be an operative hired on to do these missions and sort kind of, of sort of more like a first person perspective. Uh, you're probably still like a isometric camera kind of thing, but but definitely oh, okay. just that kind of living in the world kind yeah. of thing, like having your own place and gear. You can go out to the the local ca- diner and get a hot dog, or bug some guy in the street, or uh, start plotting your own little missions. And but uh, it, it would definitely be fantastic. But it's a whole another set of mechanics in game that would be uh, uh, definitely a whole new project. Okay. Well, it definitely sounds like an interesting project because I can, I, I can see you ex- importing your own corporation. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, it sounds like you're you know you're very passionate about this. Uh, is uh, is this the kind of game you've always wanted to make? Oh yeah, I, I've been wanting to make a uh, net game for quite a few years now. Um, I've always loved Cyberpunk. Uh, I've, uh, Shadowrun was one of the, the big influences. Neuromancer uh, mm-hmm. and Snow Crash were great books when I was, being, when I was younger. Um, I, I just love the genre as a whole. But, uh, so, uh, do you have any uh, heroes in gaming? Um, I would say uh, Will Wright, uh, definitely. Uh, Sid Meier, up there too. Uh, they're these just they these great original classic ideas, and they've like when they're, especially in, in their heyday, they're really experimenting a lot and uh, it's introducing new cool things and really trying new stuff that normally wouldn't be liked by people. And uh, actually, I will write right now. I think is uh, making toys or something. He, he's I'm not sure what he's doing. He uh, definitely wasn't uh, in with the Sim City uh, stuff. No. <laughs> Yeah, Not at all. That that was a total disaster. It, it was a pretty huge mess up on their part. <laughs> from from uh, what I hear. So <laughs> Yeah. And I think we actually have an article on that later on. Uh yeah. Actually I just spent this morning uh talking with EA customer service, uh because they, they uh charged me for two horrible unbroken game <laughs> broken games instead of just the one. Wow. Uh, yeah. <laughs> So it took me about uh, three hours of various holdings to, to get that worked out. Hmm. Uh, I, I love SimCity games. Uh, I, I had to get this one because uh, it's SimCity. 
But yeah, I'm 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 pretty disappointed with a lot of things that they've done to the game. Yeah, uh, let's see, I think SimCity 2000 was the first game that I binged on back in the 90s. <laughs> um, and, you know, I played it to death, and uh, then I bought SimCity 4 several years later. And, you know, I could kind of see where they got, like, the SimCity idea from, but it just wasn't the same. There was, like, too much more stuff. You know, it wasn't simple. For for which game? Uh, Sim City Four. Hmm. I I was a, a pretty decent fan of, of Four. Uh, had some rough corners, and some of the parts in the systems got a bit too complex. Uh, oh, like not in a good way, but but like a uh, like transit systems. There'd off, you'd often have people who would ignore the highways to take uh, all oh, these yeah. bad streets, and oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, wouldn't really get to work, even though they could just jump on the highway and get downtown in seconds and. Yeah, there, there's there's some of those problems in the new SimCity as well that I've been hearing last report of. Uh, I haven't seen many myself because you know I haven't been able to get in my city to play it. But, right. Uh, and you know, I I was considering getting SimCity. Uh, then they said that it would be always online, and that kind of watered it down a little bit for me. Um, I, I was hoping that the always online thing wouldn't be an issue, and I could just look past it. But uh, they, yeah, it's. Like I, I'm always online, anyways, so I figured you know I'll, I'll put up with their awful DRM schemes for now because I love SimCity so much. Uh, but they they've really crippled the game beyond just you know treating their customers as criminals. Uh, the whole server side computation for regional stuff means that when their servers constantly go down, that you lose all the information, uh, you get kicked out of your game, and have to go back in. The city's all gone. I, I've I've started a city three times. Uh, Wow! And the game would just Ouch. crash and lose the city, and yeah, and, and, and I, I'm running the Kickstarter too, so it's like I don't have a lot of time to play games. <laughs> I've I've had I've had like like four or five hours in the last uh, week to actually try it out, and it's just mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's not a good. It, well, it's well, really we, we, well, one of the theories we came up with why you were late was you were playing Hots. <laughs> <laughs> Since uh, that what, just what is, came out, this Hots, Heart of the Swarm. Uh, StarCraft 2. Um, I, I actually am not a StarCraft guy. Uh, my, my roommate, Ross, is a huge StarCraft fan. Um, well, it just came out today. So. Uh, that's right, yeah. I, I saw the, the PETA announcement about it. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll be getting to that later. Um, so, I'm, I'm, well, since you brought this up, uh, I'm going to ask you this question, and I'm, I'm pretty sure I know what the answer is. Will there be DRM in uh, NetGain? There is no DRM planned for NetGain. Yay! Um, Sweet. I, I just don't see the point. It's a huge waste of my time and energy to put something on there that's going to be ripped out in a couple seconds by a pirate anyways. Yep. Um, the only DRM I can possibly think of is if... I, I do want to get it on Steam, um, especially for a game that updates as frequently as I want to update NetGain. Um, I think Steam would be a great platform. Uh, I know some people consider that DRM, uh, so there might be that. Um, but those people who are, you know, avidly anti-Steam will still have access to uh, traditional downloads. So there'll still be a DRM-free mm-hmm. version for them. Well, I, I like the way Minecraft does the updates. Mm-hmm. So, and, uh, you know, people who are getting all up in arms over Origin, you know, you know, I think it's just EA hate, mostly. Well, I think part of it is uh, 
Origin is a good example of how to do an online store wrong, and Steam is a good example of how to do it right. Um, uh, then again, Steam has been around about a decade longer, too. So Exactly, but you're kind of hoping that EA would pick up on some of those lessons when they made their store. So... Um, it's, it's, I, I, try, I try not to hate him on too much. Uh, actually, my my, uh, my sister's boyfriend works for EA, but he's you know he, he works on, on one of the games, the developer. He's not you know one of the the suits in charge of those decisions. Right. Cool. Um, you know, unfortunately, you never really know those kinds of people who do. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's in some dark, smoky boardroom somewhere and pentating their fingers and plotting. <laughs> Yeah, one of the uh, memes that we do on this show is uh, uh, me and Chris will yell raspberry back back and forth to each other. So, uh, well, uh, I guess this might be another question, but uh, have you thought about uh, releasing on Raspberry Pi? <laughs> I, uh, I have not considered Raspberry Pi. Um, I, I'm not... I, I don't remember what the specs are for that, but I'm pretty sure they might not be able to handle uh, that well, game. They- they did release Minecraft on Raspberry Pi a while ago. Yeah, but uh, I I wouldn't blame you if you don't come to Pi uh, because <laughs> the thing is slower, you know, slow as a dog. Um, yeah. And <laughs> and as my recent quote, it is slower than YouTube on FiOS. <laughs> um, uh, by the way, I do have a FiOS connection. Um, nice. So, it, but uh, I think. I think that that's sort of a joke now in that uh, in the past, well, ever since the first of the month, I've noticed that YouTube is about three times better than what it was. Correct. <laughs> so, so someone at the uh, Google YouTube is, uh, uh, I think, might be paying attention to that. <laughs> so, uh, do you want to join in with the uh, Raspberry? Uh, I'm sure, you guys lead the charge here. Raspberry? Uh-huh. Raspberry? Raspberry. Raspberry! 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 Raspberry. Well, uh, Ars Technica uh, has an interview uh, with the two guys who built the... uh, the Debian-based operating system for the Raspberry Pi, uh, and that is uh, what I am using uh, on my Raspberry Pi. And it uh, seems that, uh, like, one of their main challenges was is that the uh, Raspberry Pi has uh, an ARM v6 architecture chip on it, uh, whereas uh, Debian uh, has more stuff for the ARM v7 architecture. Uh, so the V6 wasn't really supported in far as, uh, hardware-based floating point calculations. Hmm. Uh, but, uh, uh, 
and it tells a story of how they got, uh, uh, like, I think they eventually got eight Raspberry Pis just to build all the packages from, packages from the Debian repos. And, and I'm thinking, well, they could probably, you know, uh, buy an i7, you know, PC and compile them a lot faster. But apparently in Debian, it's, uh, you know, recommended that you build on the architecture that, uh, the package will be run on. Right. It makes a little bit of sense. So, and, uh, you know, tells, you know, pretty much how their uh, build system is uh, both software and hardware. So, have you have you heard from PETA? Uh, well, uh, we here at uh, Control Structure uh, consider ourselves to be uh, equal opportunity laughers. Um, we'll pretty much, uh, laugh at anyone, uh, but, uh, this is this week's installment of LOL PETA. <laughs> this is, uh, from the deep, dark realms of the ridiculous category, and, uh, PETA is apparently progress, uh, protesting StarCraft II Heart of the Swarm because apparently the Zerg have feelings too. <laughs> now, now I remember earlier this week that uh, they were protesting uh, Assassin's Creed IV uh, because it had whaling in it. Uh, but seriously, PETA, do something a little bit more productive. <laughs> Well, this, this, this is their productive. I mean, like this is how they work, you know. It, it's it's riding on other people's attention to get more publicity for themselves. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, let's see here. Um, you know, we think that we'd make an effort to understand and respect Zerg rather than sending out the battle cruisers. <laughs> well, I respect the Zerg in the in the, in the speed and efficiency in which they can rip off my face. <laughs> Sure, <laughs> you do that Zerg rush. You know, what am I saying is look at the cute Zergling. How could anybody ever want to hurt a Zergling? I'll fry its head <laughs> off with my laser. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Oh my. Well, don't, don't forget about the cute bullets. Bah, I messed that one up. About the cute Hydralisk. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, weren't they so cute in the trailers? Oh yeah, like blasting up from the ground and you know the ultralisk smashing everything. It was pretty mm-hmm. cool. Yeah, uh, let's see. I think it was uh, a few years ago, like for Valentine's Day, they uh, had a like an ultralisk and a marine running towards each other, and the marine had like a little heart symbol above them. <laughs> 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 okay, for for a second there, I thought you were gonna go into something else. Ah, uh, so uh, uh, let's see. Uh, I guess we also talk about uh, video codecs on this podcast as well, and uh, it appears that uh, just this past week that the MPEG LA, uh, let's see, Google bought. Uh, the MPEG LA off to make uh, VP8 or the uh, codec behind WebM patent free. Um, uh, WebM being the uh, uh, sort of one of the standards behind the HTML5 uh, video element. Hmm. Huh. And cool. uh, so, and so it's 
patent free now. Uh, yes, uh, because Google said so and uh, paid for it. Um, so cool. the uh, the license says that uh, you know pretty much anyone can do anything with it now, since uh, Google told them to shut up. I guess. <laughs> well, I guess that's one way to do it when you're multi- and when you're a multi billion dollar company. Buy so, the other company out and tell them to shut up. Oh, yeah. So if that's we what, uh, that's what they do with uh, Motorola, wasn't it? When they're having all their their patent fights, they decide to just buy them. Yeah. Um, so the uh, brief history about uh, VP8 uh, was originally from a company called On2, uh, which, as I recall, pretty much specialized in video codecs, and I don't think anything else. And uh, like Google bought them out because VP8 was supposedly an independently developed codec, so in theory they shouldn't be any patents covering uh, anything in it. Uh, so they wanted to you know make this a web standard since you know ideally there was no patents on it. Um, but then the uh, MPEG Los Angeles decided to uh, uh, you know go around and started to gather a patent pool for this, and you know. Uh, with uh, Google paying them off, uh, it's they told them to knock it off. Uh, the, the the poll patent trolling thing is this has always been kind of a, a sketchy aspect of the tech industry. Yep. So you you, you, you did hear about the new egg one, right? Uh, new egg? No, I've not. Yeah, Andrew. Uh, let's see. I think it was maybe two months ago uh, that. Uh, Newegg won a lawsuit against uh, this patent trolling company that supposedly had a patent on uh, online shopping carts. Oh, just right. The, like the, the shopping cart. Just the general idea of a shopping cart in an <laughs> online store. Yeah. Um, so, and I guess that would sort of affect, uh, you know, my workplace since I essentially, you know, help build... Uh, you know, web stores for companies. Uh, but, uh, yeah. yeah. There's, there's, there's patent trolls and there's copyright. Actually, one of the, one of the famous patent trolls, uh, in games is the, the crazy taxi arrow. You know how it has a little arrow that points towards your objective above the car? That's been patented. Hmm. But so wait, you, what? You can't, you can't, you know, the little arrow that points to your objective in crazy taxi, and that, that old, uh, old game, uh, was, was patented by, I think it was Sega. Hmm. So it's huh. uh, you have to pay them a license fee to use that feature. Hmm. Anyways, um, so it came out a couple of days later. I think this might have been over the weekend. I read this, uh, but uh, apparently uh, Google totally won on that uh, MPEG LA deal. Um, yeah. In that uh, VP8 is even you know more secure to use. Uh, even for commercial purposes, than H.264 is. Ooh, sounds like a company's going to tank. So, you know, this is, you know, pretty big. And, uh, you know, I think that this is, you know, a very, very good thing. Um, because even, you know, I've looked at uh, H.264 and VP8 side by side, and you can sort of distinguish if you look especially if you look closely that vp8 is slightly worse but overall you know it's you know pretty good so uh 
Let's say even, you know, it says, uh, you know, why is this surprising? Well, because it means VP8 is a hell of a lot safer and free from possible legal repercussions than H.264. Uh, what many uh, 264 proponents do not understand, either willfully or out of sheer ignorance, is that those H.264 licenses, you know, embedded in Windows, OS 10, iOS, your professional camera, and so forth, do not cover commercial use. Uh, so if you shoot a video with your camera, upload it, and get some income from those ads, you're in violation of the license. Huh, interesting. And the MPEG LA has made it clear that they have no qualms about going after individual users. Of course. Um, but I think they said something about, like, until at least 2016, they really don't care, at least on the decoding side. Uh, so, uh, yeah. Go VP8. Go WebM. <laughs> So, uh, you had mentioned uh, SimCity 4 back there, mm -hmm. and it seems that uh, EA has finally apo apologized over a dumb SimCity launch. Mm. So, so over, uh, you mean over, over the new one? Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah, not, not the one made in 1989, the <laughs> newer SimCity. <laughs> did, did, did they forget to put a number after it? Yes, uh, there... It's, <laughs> It's pretty much the new way of making games nowadays is to, yeah. you know, name your newest game the exact same thing as the first one. Yeah, I, I think Apple did that with the iPad. Well, well, I know they, they came out with a new iPad. Um, I'm not sure if they have made a new, new iPad or whatever. Eh, Give it six more months, I'll have a new one out. <laughs> and everyone will go crazy. Yep, and the stocks will drop. <laughs> no, actually, uh, I saw this post um, by the, uh, the Lucy Bradshaw on, on the SimCity page. It's like a link to from the launcher. Hmm. Um, and I mean, about them, they're, they're one of their, their offers for the apology is that you, uh, and sometime in like mid-March, they're going to give uh, people who bought SimCity a free EA game or something like that. Yeah, I heard about that. Yeah. Mm. I, cool. I wanted to leave a comment, but when I try to log in, their uh, login servers are apparently down as well, so I couldn't leave a comment. <laughs> but uh, I, I think one of the best ways to apologize is make it a seamless process to get a refund so that those that want a refund could do so. But mm. obviously that's not something they would, they would ever do. Well, uh, when... Um War Magic came out, I forget by which company, that, that game was a total disaster, so they remade it and they gave en en Fallen Enchantress to those people who bought the game. Mm -hmm. And then they're coming out with an expansion, which they're also giving to free for people who bought the War of Magic, which I apparently was one of them. <laughs> So, that would be a good way to make it up, but I can't really correct. see EA giving away that kind of stuff for free. Well, last last game I think I got from EA was Spore about a year uh, yeah. ago. <laughs> so we're we're, sure, we, we, you sure that we, wasn't Mass Effect Three? I do not know. It's been it's been a while. Yeah, at least I'm pretty sure that uh, my last game from EA was Mass Effect Three. 
Okay. It's one of those things I'd rather not talk about. <laughs> yeah. But it's it's kind of hard to enjoy games and not end up with some sort of EA game disappointing you along the lines. Yeah, but uh, I'd say it's a pretty poor investment on, you know, return on investment to, uh, you know, buy games, hope they're crappy, then get another free game. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I'm still just waiting for the terms to come out, because I'm sure it's going to be like, get any of these games for half off, or any $10 game or less for free. <laughs> so. They, they love yeah. their fine prints. Oh, yeah. So, like, especially, uh, uh, like, for beating class action lawsuits. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, anyways, uh, Dan Stapleton uh, over at IGN now, uh, formerly, uh, formerly Game Spy and formerly PC Gamer, uh, he has uh, written a post uh, uh, giving a warning to... Uh, Microsoft, Sony, and every other publishers about the dangers of always online DRM. Oh yeah. So you know, you know, pretty much goes over, you know, explaining how uh, you know it's bad, the uh, consequences, and the problems that go along with this, uh, because you know, uh, and trying to force a massively multiplayer online aspect into formerly single player games. Yeah. Uh, you know, games that would be perfectly fine without them. Yeah, since they did not need to have the always on, uh, like region play, people's computers can handle calculations for region play. They should have the option of going online. That would have been fantastic. But the always on was not necessary. It is entirely a DRM measure that just punishes customers. Yep. Um, I, I do want to say, though, that uh, despite all the EA bashing, <laughs> Uh, the the people who develop these games, uh, you know, the Maxis teams and the, the developers at EA, like they're they're great people, they're they're hardworking developers, and they just from the, the the top down they get some awful directives that they have to implement. Yeah, that's you know pretty much how it is with almost every bad decision. Yeah. Yep, I can speak for that. <laughs> So, uh, Stapleton here mentions uh, Ubisoft uh, that uh, did it with Assassin's Creed 2, I think. Yeah, it, it, it was Assassin's Creed 2. And, uh, and then Blizzard uh, with a Diablo 3. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now EA. And uh, yeah, I've had a little bit of experience with this, uh, but not always online, but... Uh, you know, games that have an optional online component that it you know adds value but is not required. Uh, like, uh, in, for instance, uh, StarCraft II: Wings of Liberty. Uh, I think that had, if I recall, that was mostly a smooth launch. Um, you know, like I could get on and play fine. It seems that, uh, well, at least before Diablo 3, that uh, Blizzard knew how to run a uh, gaming network uh, with uh, millions of people on it. All right. Um, and then I remember Mass Effect 2. Uh, uh, let's see, I, yeah, I got it with that online pass, so I got uh, the Zaid character for free. Uh, but when I initially started playing it, I couldn't uh, get in to download that. So, you know, I was like, okay, well, I want to play this game anyway. So I think I the first playthrough was uh, without him. But, you know, 
<laughs> it, it was perfectly uh, fine experience without. So, yeah, it's it's something that they're all of the talk about how they need the always on to do other things is is baloney. It's it's all about trying to force a DRM on there. Correct. Cause and I don't know. They just it's I, it's they keep I, I, trying it. And sorry. Mm-hmm. I like playing my games at the airport where there's not always internet or or when you're on a flight, the internet's not there. Well, there's that, and then there's also, uh, you know, soldiers and troops who are, you know, in Afghanistan or something. You know how hard an internet connection is to find in Afghanistan? <laughs> no, I thought, I thought they were readily available. Uh, well, not if you're not out in the mountains where you find soldiers. Yeah. From the impression I get, they'll have like some some of the bases will have uh, internet connections, but a lot of a lot of times they'll just they won't have something available. Yeah, and you know, pretty much at best, you'll have a satellite connection that bounces up and down like three, four, five times with horrible lag. Yeah, mm-hmm. and and the the point is that all this stuff doesn't even do anything. Like all of these games still get pirated. You can still pirate all these always online games. It doesn't stop anything. It only punishes customers. Mm-hmm. Right. It's, yeah. yeah, it's. Uh, I think it's more of the investors' role mindset that you know pretty much all of corporate America has in these days. Mm-hmm. You know, investors, you know, say it's like, "Oh, people are pirating our game. You need to stop that." <laughs> it's like, well, here's what we can do. Uh, you know, even though there might be some blowback from the company, yeah. the investors are like, "You got to do something about this because." You know, ninety percent of the people playing our game pirated it. Yeah, I, th- I think there's this huge disconnect where people see those the numbers of pirated games and they think of every single one of those numbers as a sale. Yeah, and that's totally not the case. Like, like they, a percentage of those people may have bought your game anyways, but a lot Correct. of people are only playing it because it's free. Yeah, and I'd imagine that's only a small fraction of you know those free players would actually buy it anyway. Yeah. But they, they see that huge number of potential sales, and it just drives them crazy. Yep. Um, and, you know, then again, the uh, sort of, you know, again, that mindset that, you know, profits now, you know, everything else be damned mindset is, you know, destroying a lot of stuff. Yeah, I, mean, I, I definitely don't advocate piracy, but there's just, this is not the way to deal with it. Yeah, right. and unfortunately, most of these investors are... Like mutual fund groups and you know other things, you know other investment houses uh, that you know don't really give a crap about gaming. Yeah, it's. I, mean, I think it might be a bit easy to paint them with the, the broad brush, but I definitely think that they may be a bit more removed from it and, and not see the consequences of these actions. So yeah, like DRM free protects our or DRM protects our game. Then yeah, sure, put it on there. Why not? They don't really. Real, I may not be fully aware of the consequences of putting it on there. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, DRM is bad because Richard Stallman <laughs> says it's bad. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I, I, I think you just got to work with people and just try to make uh, a better product and just try, try to try to offer reasons that the non-pirated version isn't going to be or is going to be better than the pirated version. Like Minecraft yeah. is a good example with all the constant updates. You can get the pirated version, but if you want like the newest stuff, then it, it's nicer to have the, the yeah. legit copy. 
And then, you know, the same, that's uh, pretty much the argument with Steam is that it adds value to games. Exactly. You know, you get achievements. Yep. Big one. And, you know, the ease of, you know, posting screenshots, YouTube videos. Auto updating. Yep. Of course. And, and, And not to mention all the sales that go on anyway. Yeah. Constant sales, all your games in one place, easy community engagements. Like it's that is how you do DRM. So, and uh, you know, I'm sort of taking a page from uh, like music piracy, but uh, you know, uh, as it turns out, that uh, the people who pirate a lot of music also buy a lot of music. Hmm. So I'm wondering how many of percentage of people that pirated the game actually turned around and bought it. All right. I think there might also be a lot of uh, uh, people pirating games from larger companies and buying from the independent developers and stuff. So, and also people like to support the people who need it the most and that kind of, that kind right. of thing too. So, and I can also see a lot of pirated games for like old ones that you can't oh, buy anymore. Abandonware, yeah. 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 Yeah, GOG uh, I hear has a pretty good selection. Oh yeah, I'm, I'm I'm very glad GOG came around and gave that option to people. So then, uh, and then, well, speaking of Steam, I remember that uh, Gabe Newell uh, said that you know how companies uh, sort of stay away from places like Russia because that's where <laughs> all the people pirated their games. And uh, Gabe Newell says, well. Yeah, because you're not selling your game there. Of course, they're you know that's the only option for them to get it. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, like to bring it over to media, like the game, like Game of Thrones. Uh, they actually just talked about how it's one of the most pirated shows, but the producers don't think it's a problem because like they they realize they're doing quite well on their own, and like that's there's not a lot of ways to get the show. Yeah. Um. So. Uh, I recall that Valve decided to change the state of things, and uh, like I, it's some sort of ATM bank thing over in Russia where people can actually put money onto their Steam accounts from this ATM, huh. and Russia is now Valve's second biggest market. That, that's awesome! I haven't heard of that. Nice. <laughs> so. See if you can find that article. Uh, I believe we had talked about it uh, several weeks ago. Mm. So, yeah, I'll be sure to right. dig that up. There right. it is. Uh, Game doesn't, doesn't ring a bell. Got a link for you right now. <laughs> so, uh, yep. So, uh, anyway, uh, you found a 3D printer, huh? Yeah, apparently it says the future is here. This I ran across this when I was just stumbling around using stumble upon and it says make a box desktop 3d scanner is a real life star trek replicator and it's and it goes on to say talk about that 3d modeling does exist but the initial step is so hard of scanning the object into the computer printing it's already more easy so they designed this software Digitizer Desktop 3D, I think that's what it's called, that can easily yeah. scan a 3D object. That's very cool. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not sure when I can actually get my hands on one of these and what the printer <laughs> requires, because... Uh, 
the MakerPod is was it two or three thousand dollars now? Yeah. I'll wait till they become a hundred dollars. At least we start printing MakerBots with MakerBots, and we'll be set. <laughs> hey, that's a good idea. Yeah, you know, I would get one of these if there was a definite application for it. So, but I don't really require any 3D printing. <laughs> I think there's there's a lot of applications if you have one of those niches that it fits into. Yeah, and I'm not, you know, now that I mention it, I'm not sure if it's a chicken or the egg problem. Hmm. <laughs> you know, there's there's nothing to print in 3D because there's nothing you want to print in 3D. <laughs> Actually, I just read a uh, fantastic article about um, uh, it was this, this girl who had uh, um, upper, upper upper body. Um, I'm not sure if some sort of issue, but she didn't wasn't have very strong arms. Um, but this company uh, made this rig for her to wear that allows her to easily use her arms, and it's built of the 3D printer. Um, and so if any part of it breaks, then they can just call up the company and they can print out a new part and ship it to them for cheap. And oh. it's just this way of creating these really custom pieces that would cost a fortune in a company or in, in a manufacturing line. But with the 3D printer, you can make these one-off things that are specifically tailored to people. Just change the model around and print it out for them. Oh, interesting. That, that's, that's really cool. Yeah, yeah really smart. Yeah, it's a and of course you know heartwarming story of a <laughs> helping a young yeah. one. Yeah, it's it's it really comes down to those instances of where you just need to print one thing instead of having that huge manufacturing process. And I think a lot of things like Kickstarter to tie it back into that, it, it's all about making the, these smaller things for smaller groups of people and finding ways to to enable that. Interesting. Yeah, well, I could de- I, yeah I could definitely see a lot of small little statues on Kickstarters, which is kind of common. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah, and like especially with uh, like uh, collectors editions, uh, like of games, especially like they come with those little knickknacks. Ah, uh, yeah, correct. So, uh, yeah. you know, speaking of a chicken and the egg problem, there's a chicken and the egg problem with my Raspberry Pi. <laughs> really? So, yeah. So. I initially uh, got the thing to uh, hook up to a TV so you could, uh, you know, do uh, slides on, you know, just, you know, to set it and forget it. But uh, yeah. turns out that it's not uh, much faster than the uh, laptop that uh, my church uses to uh, do that. Huh. So, and, uh, but hey, I have a Raspberry Pi, I just need to figure out what to do with it. <laughs> well, I'm sure you could write a program to have the Raspberry Pi to figure out what it needs to do. <laughs> Maybe you can plug it up to the toaster. I'm sure you could plug it up to the toaster. Right. Or the Just microwave. Or, or uh, well, somehow put it uh, connected up to the toilet and use it as a file server. Uh, kids at home, please do not try to attach your Raspberry Pi to a microwave. <laughs> uh-huh. well, I, I saw this one really nice um, clip, and it shows like on Facebook, and it says, I broke my leg, posted from microwave. Really? 
Yeah. It was, it was really interesting. So, oh, well. Um, well, I suppose that's it. Um, yeah. Uh, see, I guess, I guess I could dig up uh, the questions that uh, Ryan sent us. Yep. Go ahead and go ahead and do that, and we can chit chat about that for a little bit. Okay. So, so uh, uh, John, uh, what other hobbies do you have? Just out of curiosity. Um, God, it's been so long. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, my 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 life has been kind of dedicated to this project for the last few months. Um. So I've kind of lost track of uh, a life outside of it. Uh, let's see, let's see. Oh, uh, I used to enjoy uh, fencing and hiking and all those kind of fun things. Um, I, I do still enjoy uh, uh, drawing, although I do it more as a personal uh, kind of thing now. Um, I don't know, it's going to sound so damn nerdy, but this is probably the podcast to say it on. Uh, really, my hobby is just learning new things. Uh I'll pop open Wikipedia and just start diving into various topics. And uh, yeah, I, I just love finding new things that I, I've known absolutely nothing about and just picking up little bits of information and reading up on them. Mm. That sounds a lot like Aaron Schwartz. Uh, Aaron Schwartz? Yep. Yeah, liking to tinker with stuff. Uh <laughs> Yeah, he committed suicide about two yeah. and a half months ago. Yeah, like at the beginning of January. Yeah, with uh, the pressure of the uh, the prosecution. Yeah. Yep. Well. So, yeah, uh, Ryan sent us some questions with regard to our last show. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I believe I mentioned somewhere that uh, I was walking back from Subway uh, for lunch. And, uh, yes, I pretty much eat at Subway almost every day. You know, I can, I can afford it. <laughs> you What's your sandwich of choice? Uh, I, I really like the chicken bacon ranch. Oh, really? Ooh, nice. I, I've heard good things. I have to give it a try. Yeah, unfortunately, the, uh, the Subway I go to now, uh, it's pretty expensive, so... I <laughs> Wait, pre- what, 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 what happened? Well, a, a subway is a subway. Yeah, what's expensive for subway? Um, like a nine dollar sandwich. Whoa! What for a, a foot long? I thought they were doing their whole like five dollar foot long special thing now. Um, last month. Ah, that's um, right. But uh, yeah, apparently the uh, prices are set by each uh, uh, store individually. Right, the franchise. Yeah, uh-huh. you know they do have a. Uh, select group of subs that are always $5 footlongs. Uh, pretty much everything else is, you know, high as the sky, I guess. That's a bit absurd. Interesting. So, you know, nowadays I've been eating a lot more veggie subs. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know... Well, you know, you could always just make your own sandwich. Yeah, but... <laughs> I'm lazy. Or, or, or just walk in there with the chicken and the ranch and the bacon <laughs> and mask him to put it on. <laughs> so, um, yeah, he says that uh, Firefox OS uh, will not be covered much on his show because it's not going to be a gadget in America. It will be a joke. Hmm. Uh, well, 
in that case, it would probably be the most successful thing ever. Uh, because if something is the crappiest and worst thing, uh, it'll probably succeed. Mm-hmm. Is it supposed to be that bad? I, I don't know anything about the, uh, the OS they're proposing. I haven't really heard much about it. Um, you know, it, it could be just as good as Android. Um, but I, I guess that uh, Ryan here isn't really convinced of that. <laughs> well, they are pretty late to the party, so it's going to be an uphill battle. So, uh, with, re- uh, with regards to what if I had a Raspberry Pi right here, uh, well, what if you did because your comments gave it away? Um, uh, because it was a few days before the last episode that I had uh, went on to Ars Technica, and I forget what exactly Raspberry Pi story that they had, uh, but I had mentioned, yeah, since after talking about it on my podcast for so long, and that was the link back to my podcast page, and about ten people had followed that link through, so he uh, noticed on the webpage analytics. Hmm. So, uh, that's sort of cool. I'm not sure if any of them listened in. Uh, so he suggests uh, running War Game on uh, the Raspberry Pi. Uh, which is uh, Ryan's uh, benchmarking program that he has. And uh, he he wondered how it would work out. Um, I did do that, and it was horrible. Like, really horrible. How, how, how many games? Uh, let's see, the games per millisecond, I think, was four thousandths of a game per millisecond. Four um, thousandths? Yeah. Um, 0.004? Yep. Okay. Um, whereas, like, an i7 gets 26. <laughs> um, so, yeah, several magnitudes uh, distance there, and I'm not sure if it's just the uh, the bad state of Java optimization on Raspberry or what. It doesn't really matter, I don't think. <laughs> but, you know, it's slow, but I'm not sure if it's that slow. <laughs> so, uh, we were talking about using the descendant selector and how it's one of the uh, slowest CSS selectors out there. And he says that uh, Ryan uh, here uses that, he uses the descendant selector everywhere. Uh, so, every couple of weeks, he wants to change how the CMS looks and he has to fight with it, uh, you know, to make it look properly. And he mentions that he uses SAS. He says that I used SAS but didn't use SAS to write the SAS. I'm, <laughs> I'm not exactly sure how that would work. So, and uh, let's see, the HTML5 storage bug. Uh, he says, after hearing about this, I just thought of a general vulnerability at my district's computer labs and that they do not pro that they don't prohibit large allocations of space. It would be trivial to write a program to spam the drive with junk and fill up all the remaining space. He should totally do that. Kids at home, do not make uh, spamming viruses. So, Yeah, as long as you don't run them on your own computer. <laughs> so, uh, uh, he wonders uh, what in the world Chris was doing in Chrome. Um, he, he says that he's never had a Chrome crash like that. It's strange. Well, then again, how many programs were you trying to download that would download websites? Uh, I 
think I downloaded about nine different programs. Hmm. And none of them did what I want them to do, so... But hey, on a completely unrelated subject, it's actually sort of related, I did finish my Morse code program. Oh, that's good. Yep, so now I can actually start on my web downloader. So I guess that's the uh, progress report for that. Yep. Uh, so, uh, he says that the security tightening is a good thing. Uh, let's see, I, yeah, I think that might have been the article we posted about the first five minutes on a Linux server, that you want to tighten things up. Uh, I would do those things if I did not run a dev server locally, but was setting it up more for external use. Hmm. Uh, uh, Ryan says that he had C-sharp exposure in middle school and ran away because it was too expensive to run a server with ASP.NET in C-sharp. PHP is cheaper and easier to use. He liked the platformlessness agnostic PHP versus a huge stack of .NET. But I think I would adore it now. Mm. So, and, you know, currently my attitude towards that stack is neutral. So, you know, granted, you know, I do have some experience from college, but I haven't really bothered to update it. Um, let's see, he says that, Ryan says that he would love to make use of exceptions more, but I don't understand a whole lot of the flow control part of it. And you say, well, you know, they're not well documented. And that's what, that's why I can't deal with them. In PHP, they make you cry. Well, I don't really have much experience with PHP, so I guess I'll take your word for it. Well, after all, PHP is a bamboo boat strapped together that somehow manages to stay afloat. <laughs> yep. So, um, let's see. Uh, he says, nope. no, breaks and for loops are the best thing ever. It's so good. I also like labels for loops. <laughs> yeah, so I, I peeked at his uh, war game code and... It looked like he uh, put the labels on pretty much every for loop. Oh, man. Um, I pretty much don't bother with labels on for loops unless I have to break out from, like, the second one in or something. Yeah, I so, figure uh, if, if, I, if I need to use labels in a for loop, then I'm probably not supposed to be using a for loop. Correct. Well, uh, then again, I might uh, think about refactoring it because right there you're looking at about an n big O of n squared right there. <laughs> True. So, uh, Ryan says that Matt doesn't even triple boot. He can't even maintain a stable install for more than a week or a month. <laughs> <laughs> really? So, uh, yeah, I guess he wouldn't really have uh, trouble with uh, file systems in that case. Uh, he would just I guess would format it over. Correct. Uh, he, the reason that Ryan asks about test-driven development is that uh, his professor in his software development class uh, pushed us towards test-driven development. Uh, we were supposed to break our, quote, big, unquote, function into multiple smaller functions and test each one separately. Uh, the big function wasn't that long and couldn't really be split up in a way to improve functionality, reusability, and so forth. So yeah, yeah, I noticed the code that they give you in school is not really that big, so you can't really do anything with it. 
Yeah, and some processes, you know, due to like the state of the function, that it'd be really hard to break up. You Correct. Know, unless you uh, like do it inside its own little micro class or something. Uh, you know, this is sort of my pet peeve with asynchronous events, in that you know you might have to do something before, say, a network call is performed, and then you have to drop everything and, you know, sort of wait and then pick it up in the, uh, you know, the received event handler or something. And, mm. you know, state can get kind of messy, uh, you know, if you have to do that. True. So, uh, speaking of, uh, how is your QA, uh, John? Oh, um, uh, as far as what QA do I have right now? Yeah. Uh, not much. Um, and I'm pretty much uh, uh, doing what I can to get it out there as fast as possible. Um, but uh, once uh, the... Uh, sorry. Oh, once, once this next big build push is done, I'm probably going to do some internal QA with some people I know. Okay. Um, just get immediate feedback on the prototype, get the biggest bugs out of the way. Um, well, if you need help, we're here. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. So, um, let's see, Ryan says that, no, Ruby on Rails is the killer app of Ruby. That's it. It starts and ends there. But water sounds useful. You know, quote, I'm from California, and I am hipster, and I can sing and dance. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, that was uh, in response to my comment that uh, water seems to be the uh, best thing in Ruby from my standpoint. It's a library that allows you to write scripts that open up a browser and essentially, you know, allows you to fill in text boxes and press buttons and stuff, uh, all from a script so you don't have to use it manually each time you, you know, push a new build of a website or something out. Interesting. So, uh, oh, really? Do you wonder what that phone number is between the uh, breaks on his fringes? It's actually my phone number. Uh, that is Ryan's phone number, uh, did as a joke one day, but then thought it worked well as a fringe break. So. Interesting. Yep. Uh, he mentions that Ruby is not performant and neither is PHP, uh, but those fancy pants stacks are Java and .NET. Uh, Ruby and PHP can be fine if you can get enough caching and actual logic. <laughs> so, which, you know, from my standpoint, I agree with. And especially the platform I'm using at work, it's pretty much mostly done in uh, JavaScript. Uh, at least the uh, the JavaScript uh, uh, in a JVM somewhere. Uh, so you know you don't want to do a whole lot, but for generating like a product page or something, it works. And plus, you cache it, you know, you know, to infinity and beyond, pretty much. Uh, infinity and beyond being generally one day. <laughs> um, so, and Ryan says that uh, he enjoys this broad-based show. It, he keeps things interesting. So well, that's good. So yeah, that if we can deviate a little bit, like we have. <sighs> well, I think this is pretty much the furthest we have deviated on the show. <laughs> Correct. So you know, granted, this is you know going into gaming, but there's plenty of enough of, uh, you know, stuff going on behind the scenes. Correct. Lots of code involved. Plenty of yep. code, of course. <laughs> uh, C-sharp and Unity and, you know, 
design uh, patterns. Yep, and uh, teams and uh, laughing at PETA. <laughs> Wait. <laughs> <laughs> so, yep. uh, so those of you listening, if you would like to uh, uh, give us any feedback, uh, you can... Uh, Go to thenexus.tv and click the contact link and uh, make sure the show says uh, control structure and uh, me and Chris will get it. All right. So. And remember, today is International Backup Awareness Day. Oh, <sighs> eh, International Backup Awareness Day. So please back up your stuff. John, Oops. have you backed up your stuff? I backed up my stuff uh, right before I did this podcast. Good All man. Right. Good. And I will be backing up this podcast right after it's done. <laughs> it's, you know, Backup Awareness Day, today, tomorrow, every day. Every day should be Backup Awareness yep. Day. However, I find that some days I don't actually produce anything to back up. <laughs> sometimes, that, that's another problem, yeah. Some, sometimes I like those days because, you know, it generally means that it's like a Saturday or something. Yeah. So, yep. and uh, hi, Mom. <laughs> so... And, uh, well, I guess, uh, where can we find you online, John? Uh, well, you can find us at levelzerogames.com, and you can find our Kickstarter. Uh, just search for netgain colon corporate espionage. So that's levelzerogames.com? Mm-hmm. All right. Level zero game or zero game? Uh, level, level zero games. All right. So, um... See now, now that I think about it, is uh, I I admire your uh, hacking uh, counting there, uh, starting at uh, number zero. Of course. So just <laughs> just like this podcast did. Although actually, I have to admit it's a homage to uh, a level zero D and D characters mm. of uh, starting mm. uh, at the civilian level before you get out the cool powers, working your way up. Interesting. Well, that kind of incorporate a little bit with your game too oh yeah so well I, I believe that's it so uh, uh, any big plans Chris uh, nope just another week of work and work trying to put up with your roommate uh, I haven't seen him all day so that's good news well let's see what, what would be the next thing you'd have to teach him how to do I do not know. Well, see, what was the last thing I taught him how to do? You mentioned... Oh, uh, I, I taught him how to use the vacuum cleaner yesterday. Yes. Wait, yesterday? I thought you mentioned that last week. No, it was yesterday. Huh. It felt like last week. <laughs> and, 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 my, and my roommate is a co-worker of mine, and he's older than me. So... Yeah, I'm not sure what happened <laughs> that he got to America. No idea. But, uh, well, uh, let's see. It looks like, uh, let's see, I got the loan for the car. I got the insurance, uh, almost. Uh, need to pretty much finalize that. And, uh, let's see, this weekend looks kind of empty. So, so, John, what are you going to be doing? <laughs> aside aside from making the game. Uh, well, aside from making the game, sleeping. Um, That's important. Uh, yeah, so I get my, get my six hours in, and then I'm uh, back, uh, <laughs> back at the keyboard. So, all right. <laughs> so that seems to be just about it. So uh, I guess uh, have a good week. 
Yep. Have a good week. Good week, guys.